how's it going? Good, Ange. How are you? Good. Well, that means it's another episode of Money in the Bank, the podcast where we talk about all things personal finance related and beyond. So, Brett, this is a defining moment because we've talked about this a lot on the podcast before. And opportunity I was, cost. I was right. So okay, so that's like about like everything, yeah. But you were calling me a crazy person for running around our house and unplugging stuff, and yep. I have it on recording that you called me crazy. <laughs> but we just got our bill for our last billing cycle for our utilities, which is for us gas and electric in one. Do you do you want to guess how much that bill was? So just for energy, not for water, right? That's separate. Right. Um, uh, it's summer. We haven't really been running the air conditioning, though. And you, again, you've turned off all the crazy things. Um, I don't know, like $80? $100? Okay. $59.03. $59? Sub-60? Sub-60. I was very proud of myself because I set a goal... To use less than 300 kilowatt hours in one month. Um, that's how they measure our electric bill. That's with taxes and everything? Yeah, $59.03 oh, wow. for gas and electric. And that includes like our crazy $15 base charge for oh, okay. each. Because they charge us for gas and electric a base charge. Right, those shysters. So I was quite impressed with myself. So kind of as a intro to a topic... Not related to this at all. I want to talk a little bit about how we got there. So I bought one of those sweet kilowatt hour detectors from Amazon, which ran me about 10 bucks, I think. I mean, they're called Kilowatt, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yep. That's the brand name. And I was going around the house like a crazy person, plugging it in and seeing what was drawing energy. So that led me to discover the vampire load, which is basically... The fact that all of your electronics, even when they're turned off, continue to draw energy. Like, TVs and computers are big culprits. Mm -hmm. So I put everything into power strips so that when we're not using it, we can just turn the power strip off. Right. I mean, the power strip still draws some energy from the wall anyway, but it's a lot less than having, like, the TV directly plugged in. Yeah. I mean, not even really registerable on a kilowatt detector over 24 hours right so pretty minimal you know not a big deal in your bill so that was one thing i did your dryer is like the biggest suck known to man my dryer well anybody's dryer okay so the the more you can combine loads or kind of like wait until you have a big load and do laundry all at once instead of a lot of small loads that really helps running the dryer is like a nightmare and then beyond that, I also found that turning the dryer off at the breaker box made a very noticeable difference as well. I mean, and that kind of makes sense because that's a, especially our dryer is a 220 volt outlet versus like a 110 volt outlet, like every other outlet in the house. So the, the stove and the dryer are both 220 outlets. They're special. I don't know if people have never looked at it. It's a totally different plug and everything like that. So, right, it's it's drawing twice as much energy. Yep. So then on top of that, what else did I do? So I put things into, you know, surge protectors that I could. I uh, turn the dryer off when it's not in use and we don't use it very frequently. And then the other, the other big suck for us was actually our internet. So I started turning it off 
when you're traveling and I'm at work for the day, I just shut it off so that while I'm gone for eight hours, it's not on. And then typically when I go to bed overnight, I shut it off. And that made a big difference. Probably the biggest difference. Yeah, that was the biggest surprise, I think, when you when you did that. So we have two boxes. We have a cable modem and we have a wireless router. And so, yeah, you just put the, both of those on a power strip, flip the whole thing off, and then instantly, you know, we started seeing a huge difference with that kilowatt thing, right? Yes. Yeah. So those are kind of the tips I did. Maybe you don't incorporate all of them. Maybe you incorporate some of them. But, you know, I don't know. I think the proof is in the pudding, right? Like I had a bill this summer for less than 60 bucks for electric and cable. And a time... And the really cool thing about my energy company is it shows like the average usage for the neighborhood. And we used half of the electricity as the average person in our neighborhood, which is pretty awesome. Yeah, bragging rights, right? Yeah, I mean, that, that's what I talk about. My, you know, I, I talk to all my neighbors now and I'm like, oh, so how much electricity did you use, right? Um, no, I don't actually do that. <laughs> it would probably punch me. But, you know, I am, I am proud of my efforts because I think it's these little areas where you can do these little things that really aren't that hard. And, you know, we used to spend pretty much $100 reliably uh, every month in the summer. So if we can reduce our bill by 40 bucks a month, then we just save $500 a year. Right. So I got to give you props. I didn't think it was going to make that big of a difference, but I mean, that's a sizable amount of money. Um, right. And if we needed the air conditioner, we turned it on, right? Exactly. Right. It was yeah. still, we weren't like killing ourselves to make it happen. And we weren't, like, going without internet all day long, right? Right. Just to not, for the sake of not turning it on or wouldn't turn the TV on because the power strip was off. We used the stuff when we needed it. We were just conscious about turning it all off completely uh, and stopping that vampire draw when we weren't using it. Exactly. Yeah. So we weren't doing, like, crazy stuff here to get this low. We were just being aware of, you know, being a little bit more aware of when it's not in use, let's not draw it. So. All right, so let's move on to the real topic of today. Sunk cost fallacy. Do you know anything about this? Uh, those are the misconceptions about sunk costs. Exactly. Aha, nailed it. So, uh, Hopefully that was the trivia question. No, the trivia question was the energy bill. Oh, even better. All right, two for one. Two for one. He passed <laughs> both. Um, yeah, so I think the biggest time that sunk cost comes in is... Uh, actually on big purchases, which is really unfortunate. So I would say it's one when buying a house. Well, maybe that's number two. And then number one would be cars, right? And I have to admit that I did this for a very long time because I bought my car. I paid it off within a year of buying it. And then I was like, well, it's already paid off. So I might as well keep it. And then I started biking more and literally barely ever using my car to the point where I was putting about 2,000 miles a year on it, and that's only because I I was driving my car instead of driving your car, which was just sitting there when, right? And and so, but I was like, well, I already, you know, it's already paid off, so I have to keep it, and it's not worth selling it, right? And finally, when you take a step back, sunk cost fallacy is really making irrational decisions based on emotions because you feel like you've already put this money into it, right? Hence the sunk cost. Like you've already spent this money. My card already depreciated over 50%. So why would I sell it, right? Right. And when I finally bit the bullet and just did it, probably a year later than I should have, 
But still, it doesn't matter where I was on that timeline. It wasn't the right decision for me to keep a car. We did not need it. We didn't need to have that insurance payment every year or the extra registration or maintenance, right? Whatever it is, like that was, it was stupid to keep my car. And, but because I put this money into it, I felt like I should. That's, that's kind of the idea. Right. And I mean, isn't it a lot of times you hear about this mostly in like stocks where if I invest in a stock somewhere and it goes down $100 or I lose $100 in that stock, you know, I I feel like I've invested in that and I've taken a loss on it and I don't want to give it up. Right. Because I because I'm invested in it. And but the stock doesn't behave differently because I lost $100. It's not just going to automatically go back up because I lost $100, right? It's point-in-time logic. And so I need to look at exactly what's happening with it in point-in-time. And if I have reason to believe that it's going to go down again, then I should get rid of it, even if I lost $100 and take stop the bleeding, right, basically. Well, and what was that show we were watching, Till Debt Do Us Part? Yeah, it was a Canadian show or something, yeah. It's like a a Canadian show that had, like, 13 seasons, but... Uh, basically this like advisor comes in and helps this like married couple whose finances are a mess try to get on the right path but in one of the episodes this guy had bought stocks years ago and when he bought them it was like forty thousand dollars worth and so the lady comes in and she's like you have to sell your stocks like you're in debt up to your eyeballs but you know right now they're only worth thirty thousand so just like sell it and be done with it And then, like, halfway through the episode, he, like, called to sell his stocks, and then he was like, but when I was on the phone, I just got the urge to buy more. So he ended up, like, buying, like, another five grand worth of stocks while they were already in debt, and then he just got, like, chewed out by the advisor, and then he ended up selling everything. But at that point, it had backslid some more, so, you know, he was, like, total in for 50 and ended up getting, like, 30, right? Yeah. Um, but, But the... You know, and in his mind, he was like, well, it has to go back up, right? Like, I've already lost. Like, it has to go back up. It doesn't. And sometimes you just have to eat it, you know? I, and that's why I mentioned houses being another one. Because sometimes people buy a house in an area and down the road their house value has gone down or, right, the bubble burst. And they really do just need to get out of it because they can't afford to keep paying for it. Uh, but instead of getting out, they're like, well, I've, I've already put this money in and surely my house is going to appreciate again. Right. I mean, if you've heard of anybody being upside down on their mortgage, right, that's exactly that situation. Like they just, the market value of the home is depreciated to like 100, 2,000, 200,000 less of what it was when you bought it. And now you just are stuck, right? Well, one, you're stuck because you feel like it's going to go back up in the future. So you're not going to buy it, sell it at a loss. And because you can't get out of it because now you owe more on the mortgage than the house is currently worth, right? Yeah, and, you know, that's that's kind of a separate issue. Um, but, you know, I, I would say a good example of sunk cost is, let's say you buy a house or a car, and they depreciate, and you could sell it for what you bought it for. So let's just use a car for an example. So let's say you buy a car for $30,000, and... A year down, or a few years down the road, you still owe $20,000 on the loan, and the car is worth $20,000. And your payments are like $500 a month. And then you sit down and you realize like, oh, I should not be spending $500 a month on my car, right? That's too much for my budget. It is better to sell that car, get the $20,000, and then find a reliable car for, you know, seven dollars to $10,000. 
But a lot of times people will hold on to it because they're like, well, I've already put the money into it and I have a nicer car than I would if I, you know, sell it and buy something else. But the right answer is still get out of it, sell it, go back to zero and then buy what you should have. Right. So I always kind of say, if you wouldn't buy it, you should probably sell it. So this is also like a really good uh, motto to keep in mind if you bought a house and then you moved, but you kept it as a rental. If you look back and say, if this was an existing rental in today's market, would I make this investment? And a lot of times the answer is no, because starter homes are not necessarily like the rental properties you want, right? Um, and a quick smell test for that would be the 1% rule. Do you want to explain what that is? Uh, should 1% of your income? No, for uh, rentals. So like if the monthly rent is 1% of the total price, like that's a quick check to see oh, if yeah. it'll, mm -hmm. it'll make sense. And obviously, like we've talked in previous episodes that, you know, the 1% is a good smell test, but not as good as actually sitting down and taking out your expenses and figuring out what your cash flow is. Right. But in that, in that case, I mean, I was thinking in that scenario, you're over leveraged like crazy because now you either have two mortgages or you have a house that you have fully invested in, but now you've moved somewhere else. Let's say you paid off a house for 30 years and you own it, but now you moved into a condo and you're just running out the original place you had, uh, right? That, I guess that's a little bit better scenario. But like you have so much money invested in real estate in that scenario and you don't know anything about rental property management, right? right? Why would you get into that market unless you want to be in that market? Well, and so even in the example you mentioned, that's a great example to actually apply this because, so let's say you have a paid off place and then you're like, why wouldn't I rent it? So here's an example. You have a paid off place and you're renting it out for $750 a month, but you could sell it for $200,000 a month or $200,000. The 2% rule means that you would have to be making $2,000 a month for that to make sense as a rental. So even though you're like making money every month, you're still, if you invested that money somewhere else, you would make more money, right? I mean the 1% rule? Yeah, sorry, the 1% <laughs> rule. Um, but, but it's the idea that you could take the equity out of that home and invest it elsewhere and get a better return. But you're just like staying with what you have because, just because, right? Like you don't have a good justification or a good reason. Right, well, people just look at it as like, oh, I'm going to pull in some passive income, right? And it's going to pay my mortgage and then I'm netting out or maybe I'm coming a little bit ahead at the end of the day, right? With what I'm getting in the rental versus the, the mortgage. But they're maybe not looking at the annual calculation. They're not looking at vacancy rate, which means like if you don't rent that out for one year a month, are you screwing yourself, right? And automatically take a whole loss for that year, um, are you not factoring in any of the maintenance and repairs that go along with that house that if they damage anything you're, or you pay the insurance or you pay all the taxes or right? Have you done that full assessment that all comes with that property management bag that you're holding, right? It, it, it's probably very unlikely that like it is usually a good decision to both own your own property and then also get into like rental property management just because you're getting out of something. Right. Right. Well, and I, you know, I've talked to quite a few people that are like, oh, well, 
my my mortgage is being covered, so I might as well keep it because it'll appreciate. You don't know that it's going to appreciate. And if you're only getting your mortgage covered, you're losing money on it. You're negative cash flowing. So are you willing to like pay two grand to keep this house? Like, no, sell the place and move on. Right. Right, Because mortgage is like half of like in a, in a single family home. It's like half of the expenses. Right. Right. Like between taxes and insurance and like all this other crap. Right. Yeah. It's about half. (laughs) And repairs. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, because you factor in at least. It's like 7% for vacancy rate, uh, depending on your area here. In our particular area, it's 7%. You can look that up. There's a calculator for it um, by, by geographic region. And and maintenance. Maintenance is also usually around 7 8%, depending on the age of the home. And so, right, if you're not saving that and banking that 14% at the end of the day, in addition to the mortgage, in addition to the taxes, in addition to the insurance, and whatever else you have, lawn care, you know, property management fees because you're probably paying a property manager and you're not doing it yourself, right? That's another 10%. If you don't have all those other things stacked in there, then you're losing money. Right. right? Or you maybe not this year, but next year you will lose money. Um, and, I, you know, I think another good example of this is like we bought our first home. It was our starter home. We didn't know exactly what we wanted in a house when we bought that one. So we bought a place that we thought we loved. And after living there for a few years, we like came up with all these things we didn't love about it. And instead of being like, well, too late, like we already bought this and we already like paid the closing costs. Like we're like, hey, we can sell it. We can still, you know, we ended up making a little bit of money on that house. But we were like, we can. Lucky. We were lucky. We were lucky. Yes. But we evaluate our situation. We were like, we can get out of this place and move. Like, even if you bought somewhere, if you don't love it, don't feel like you're stuck forever. Like, yes, there's a lot of factors that go into this. And, you know, there's a lot of fees that go into any real estate transaction. So you don't want to continue moving. But especially if you got talked into buying a place with a higher price point than you were comfortable, don't feel like you're stuck paying that higher mortgage forever. Like, you can sell that place and downsize. I mean, we ended up downsizing. And like, that's totally on the table. That's a totally realistic thing you can do. So don't feel like, oh, well, you know, I, I got suckered into buying this half million dollar property. And now I just like, am paying way too much of my take home pay to the mortgage every month and, and keeping up with the place, right? Like I talked to somebody else who they bought like a huge, like three, you know, 3,000, 3,500 square foot place. And they were like, cleaning it was like so overwhelming and you you don't have to stay there like sell it and downsize you don't feel stuck like sure maybe it'll cost you a little bit of money to get out of it but overall you're going to end up saving money in the long run by downsizing your home footprint right and you're going to be happier right and in our case it was moving to a better location and saving on commuting time right and you didn't have to drive to work anymore which was like 25 miles, right, or something from there? Uh, it was miles. like 10 miles each Oh, so way. 20 miles round trip. Yeah. yeah. Right, so that's $20 a day plus wear and tear on the vehicle anyway, right? And then we, I guess we, we shrunk our house a little bit, but we, we increased our utility throughput, like we had better utility bills, better energy efficiency, right? We were saving a lot of other areas, whereas even if we took like a $5,000 loss on the house, in our scenario, it was still worth it to move because we were going to be the house was more cost effective over time right. than, our, than our old house was. Well, and not even just my work commuting, but like 
going to the grocery store now is like a one mile drive instead of a 20. 20. It was it was 20 miles to get everywhere from that from that house. Yeah. yeah. So I mean, like that was some that was something else we kind of factored in. So and and that's something else actually. That's a really good point too. Like I think sometimes people get so fixated on like, oh, well it's too expensive to live in this place or you know, it's cheaper to move out to the suburbs. Is it really cheaper to move out to the suburbs? What are your commuting costs doing by moving out to the suburbs? Because I think, like, for me, I learned that I could get a house closer to work in a more expensive area because my transportation costs, I mean, we used to consistently spend about five grand a year on car stuff, just gas, maintenance, everything. And now we're down to about a thousand a year. So that means that I could spend $400 a month more to live where we do now, or 300, I guess. But we didn't, we didn't have to do that, right? We ended up, we pay the same. And so now we're just saving money. Right. I've got a lot of coworkers that are in Chicago that used to live downtown and like moved out to the suburbs and it's not less expensive out there. Your property taxes are like, you bought a big house with a big yard in a super expensive area. Like your property taxes are a fortune. Right. I mean, the city's like not inexpensive, but like the suburbs are usually a little bit more expensive for the convenience. Right. right. Plus the commuting. And the, another big thing about, you know, Chicago is if you stay in the city, you're probably going to have a smaller space. Um, you know, you're probably really realistically, we know a couple people that bought places in Chicago. They're in the 1,200 to 1,500 square foot range for most of them. If you go out to the suburbs, sure, you could get that 2,000, 3,000 square foot place. But by not doing that and not inflating your lifestyle, you don't have to furnish that much space, right? So, like, that's something else to consider in the calculation, too. Yeah, the place in Chicago might be a little bit more expensive, but you don't have to furnish it. Your transportation costs are lower. Your property tax is probably lower because it's probably a condo, so you, you know, share that tax. Mm -hmm. Maybe you have an HOA, so maybe that kind of offsets it, but... You know, also, what is your quality of life? Because for me, if I had to drive like an hour or two to get into work every day, my quality of life would be zero. Through some like pretty amazing traffic, yeah. Yeah. Um, But yeah, I mean, yeah, because you're farther away from physical distance to like a grocery store. You're probably closer proximity to walk to a grocery store downtown than you are out in the suburbs where maybe you have to drive five, ten miles to get to a grocery store. Right. So now you're driving everywhere. So that's not just commute wear and tear on the vehicle. It's every single place that you ever go is is wear and tear on the vehicle. So, so I mean, that just adds up over time. I think time. people can clearly tell that we were team city. I think if you live in a big city, you probably understand that there's like team city and team suburbs. We were team city. But there are people that are team suburbs and like if you do that calculation you're like it's worth it to me to have the land and the space like that's great but just be very aware that you are making that decision right and that's kind of what we always preach on this podcast is analyze everything you do and make sure you're optimizing it for your life and your goals and so kind of like wrapping this all up now going back to sunk cost fallacy don't be afraid to reevaluate decisions you made. Brett and I do this all the time. And it doesn't mean that you're hypocritical or wrong. It just means that you're reassessing your needs and being like, does this decision that I made four years ago still serve my purposes? 
And for me with my car, the answer was no. And so finally I got to the point where I just sold it because even though it was the right decision when I made it, it did not remain the correct decision for me, right? And, and we even do that with our house sometimes now. We're like, is this still the right place for us to be living? I mean, never stop questioning yourself, but certainly don't be afraid to get out of a car or out of a house purchase because you already put money into it, right? Because you can sell it, you can get most of the money back, and then you can make the right decision that will save you money in the long run. Right. And I mean, sure, you you may take a loss in those scenarios, but yeah, it's better It's better over time. Yeah. I mean, sometimes you take like a, a few grand loss to save $10,000 over the next three years, right? Mm-hmm. And that's totally worth it. So uh, don't be afraid to do that and to to evaluate everything. We we practice what we preach here to for sure. So <laughs> All right. Well, as always, if you have any comments or questions, feel free to email me. I will drop all of that contact information in. And thank you so much for tuning in this week. Hey guys, thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of Money in the Bank. Make sure to subscribe to us on the iTunes or Stitcher app so that you get weekly alerts every time we post a podcast. Or if you want, you can visit my website, moneyinthebankpodcast.com. And if you want to reach out with any questions or further comments, please email me at angie at moneyinthebankpodcast.com. I look forward to hearing from you. Money in the Bank.